So as Kathy said during our announcements, this is our final week in our current sermon series, A Googled Faith, When the Answers You've Been Fed Don't Add Up. We've been exploring together now for five weeks uh, those moments and those questions that drive us to go to Google to make sense of our lives and our theology and the world around us. If uh, you missed any of those sermons, they're on uh, iTunes, they're on our website, and I would commend them to you. This Sunday, we're going to explore this question. How do we love the sinner and hate the sin? It's a statement uh, that seems, uh, just on the surface, is not all that problematic. It, but we, uh, we quickly learned that this is not a statement that comes from the Bible, necessarily. It's not a statement uh, that Jesus ever said. Uh, which I think we need to explore this morning exactly what Jesus said. If the statement didn't come from Jesus, where then did it come from? St. Augustine uh, is credited for creating this statement when he said, Love humankind and hate sin. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi said it this way in 1929. He said, God hates sin but loves the sinner. So then what does Jesus have to say to us? We're going to uh, turn to the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to pick up uh, at verse 9. And I would invite you to listen now for the word of the Lord to all of us this day. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men uh, went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. Those uh, thieves and rogues and uh, those adulterers are even like this tax collector. Who's sitting in the pew behind me? Okay, that's not in your Bible. <laughs> he went on to pray, You know, Lord, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of my income. But the tax collector, uh, standing far off, the tax collector would not even look up to heaven. But he was beating his breast and he was saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled. But all who humble themselves will be exalted. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Remind us, O oh God, that you hover here, that you hover in this very sanctuary, just as you hover over the waters of creation. Remind us, O oh God, that you hover here to create a fresh and a new this very day, to breathe through life into these ancient words, that they may be your word to us here and now. That you hover here so that you would breathe new life into the words of my mouth and into the meditations of all of our hearts. That all 
will be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I need to begin today uh, with a confession. I have baggage with the statement, love the sinner, hate the sin. This uh, baggage originates from when I was in high school. And parachurch organizations, those are organizations that, that function outside of the church. Parachurch organizations in my hometown would dole out this statement as advice. They would dole it out like Tic Tacs to we teenagers trying to convince us that this was the way to live a faithful life. While on the surface, uh, this statement seems harmless. I mean, how much damage can really be done with loving the sinner, hating the sin? I quickly learned that there were deeper implications for how this statement was to be implemented in our lives. It was to be implemented in two phases. The first uh, step meant to see people as sinners, to love sinners. So to see people as broken, to see them at fault, to see them not as fully who they were. Next step was this. If the sinners that you were trying to love continue to commit sins that reached a level on the sin meter, you were to separate yourself from said sinner to break the relationship, to not be friends, to cast them aside, to make sure your group didn't get any of their sin on you. For instance, I grew up uh, with a guy named Joey. Joey was my best friend. He was like a brother to me. Uh, we played year-round baseball together. Oftentimes, uh, Joey would ride with my family to tournament games. And when my parents couldn't drive, I would ride with Joey's parents to our tournament games. We spent every afternoon together. We rode in his dad's old beat-up Cadillac all over the country roads of Aiken, South Carolina. On Christmas morning, Joey would come to my house for breakfast. And then we would turn around three hours later and go to his house for brunch. We were teenage boys. We ate a lot. <laughs> Every summer, Joey and I could be found together in that Cadillac, going to the swimming pool, going to the ball, going to friends' houses. Though when we were in high school, later in high school, Joey uh, was in a period of his life that he was making some bad decisions. Uh, looking back on it, while Joey's mom wouldn't have approved of his behavior, I wouldn't necessarily call his actions harmful. But Joey's actions went up against what a parachurch organization that I was a part of deemed acceptable. His behavior was beginning to push the limits of even what I felt comfortable with. But Joey and I were like brothers. We 
did everything together. And so when one of the leaders of the parachurch organization that I was a part of sat me down one day and said, Matthew, I think you should consider not being friends with Joey any longer. His sin, man, is, is, is bringing you down. I think you need to sever ties with him. I followed that leader's advice. And I'll never forget the afternoon that I sat Joey down and I said, man, Joey, you've been my best friend for a long time. But I'm not, I'm not sure that we can be friends going forward. Joey looked like I kicked him right in the stomach. And then I said some things like this. I love you, man, and, and our, I appreciate our friendship, but, but your behavior is bringing me down. Your behavior is not a good influence on me. And I can't, frankly, man, I can't be around sin like that. Therefore, I don't think we can be friends. I mean, I was basically perfect. <laughs> I was basically perfect. So, I couldn't be around anyone who would bring me down. I gotta tell you, uh, as much as I want to make a quick joke about that this morning and all of us laugh so that I don't have to recognize my pain in telling this story, I think that we have to pay attention to the pain of our lives and the pain that we cause others. You need to know uh, how much this still churns in my stomach when I tell you this story. How embarrassed I am by this entire situation, especially the self-righteous tone of that day. I can see now what I couldn't see then. I could see so clearly now that if one hates the sin enough, if one hates the sin enough, inevitably that hate will spill over to the person associated with it. Oh, I can see that clearly now. I couldn't see it clearly then. I can see so clearly how this statement has caused so much pain. I can see how it's done harm not only to our inner personal relationships, like the relationship between me and Joey, but I can see how much harm and how much pain it has caused, especially to our friends who are persons with different sexual orientations. It's been this statement, y'all, that has been deployed against them. We've been told, uh, you know what, uh, I can, I, I can love my son or my daughter or my niece or my nephew or my college roommate or my friend. I, I can love them if they could just separate who they love from their life or their faith or their behavior. If they can do that, then we're good. 
If they can't do that, then please, please, don't get what I perceive your sin to be on me, which let's be clear just for one second. That is a perception of sin. I would be remiss to say this, of all the world's problems, the root cause has never been or will never be too much love. Friends, um, if one hates the sin enough, whatever it is, inevitably that sin will spill over to the persons associated with it. And that's exactly the opposite, it seems to me, of what Jesus wants for us. When we uh, lean into this statement, when we live this statement to the max, it ends up at conversations like the conversation Joey and I had. Because it's the lens by which we uh, are to see the whole world. Love the sinner, love the people who are broken, and pray to God that their brokenness doesn't reach the sin meter enough. When every person, when we walk around and we see that every person is in the wrong, or everyone has the potential to bring us down, or every relationship has a breaking point, when we view the world and people like this, it keeps us in the position, does it not, to throw the stones at those who are in the wrong. which, as I understand the gospel, seems like the very opposite message of Christ to me. The more I read and the more I study and the more I live, it seems to me that Christ approached every person as if they belonged to him. In fact, Christ made a habit of going to the margins to claim the people that the world had discarded, cast off, and said, away with you. It's uh, why no one was off limits to Christ, it seems to me. No one was beyond his compassion. Even the woman who had been bleeding, hemorrhaging for 10 years, she was ritually unclean. She was a woman. She was outside all that was allowed. Jesus claimed her. No one was beyond his love. Not even the person who had been married seven times. No one was beyond his compassion or his love or his mercy. Everyone, no matter their past, no matter their pain, no matter where they are from, no matter their gender, no matter their profession, no matter who they loved, and, dare I say, no matter their faith status, and certainly no matter of their past sin, they belonged to Jesus. In our passage this morning, Jesus told this parable. And that setup line is one of the greatest setup lines to a parable in all of Scripture. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Dear Matthew, about your conversation with Joey, <laughs> two people went to the temple to pray. 
The Pharisee prayed by listing all of their good deeds, their perfect and faithful behavior. God, I am so thankful that I'm not like all of those sinners, not like all those other people, those thieves and rogues and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And there's that tax collector. And let's be abundantly clear here for a second. Tax collector in the Bible, we all just understand that they're universally hated. Got it? There's that tax collector. He's at the temple and he can't even, I I read the text and I envision him. He can't even bring himself to look up to heaven. His guilt and his shame have him looking down and he is simply praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus lifts that person who is hunched over. Jesus lifts this up. This person, he lifts him up as an example of how we are to approach prayer, how we are to approach faith, that we are all in need of mercy equally. You know, Jesus never said love the sinner, but he did say um, love your neighbor. When our eyes are oriented to see every person as a neighbor, someone that we trust, someone that we belong to, it points us to a relationship that isn't easily discarded, a relationship that's not easily cut off, a relationship, dare I say, that is not contractual. Jesus says, love your neighbor, and then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, how are we doing with that one, folks? doing with loving ourselves no wonder we uh, judge folks so harshly judge ourselves same way I don't know about you you can get 47 really nice emails you get that one mean email and you think man I really am not that good you do everything right you think you got great kids Then you hit one of those seasons and one of those patches and you think, man, it must have been something I did. We can turn to shame in an instant. Can we not? When things don't go our way. Oh, man, we can we can take the pain that we carry. The pain that's not been transmitted in our lives transformed in our lives, the pain that has not been transformed, and we can transmit that pain to the people that we're closest to, to our partners and our spouses and our colleagues. Our guilt over past wrongs can drive us to make poor decisions even today and in the future. How are we doing with loving ourselves? truth of the matter is none of us are perfect we know that the thought that someone else could bring us down it's self-righteous it is because we aren't being truthful with our own lives uh, sin in the bible in the greek and in the hebrew is literally transited, translated this way To miss the mark. 
And we miss the mark in really small ways and in really big ways. And the reality is we can't, even in our own lives, separate our best selves, the selves that we want to post on social media about, from the selves that are broken and we don't want anyone else to know about. We can't separate our lives from the good and the bad. Our lives are beautiful yet broken. Absolutely holy and yet absolutely messy. They're both. So to suggest that we look at people first through the lens of judgment and then put every relationship on the chopping block, it seems to me we aren't doing a very good job of living like we belong to one another. It seems to me that that's not the invitation to this life that Christ invites us to. Christ came to teach us that God's relationship with us is not transactional, but rather it's covenantial. And do you know who taught me this? I went to high school with this guy named Joey. He was my best friend in the whole world. We played baseball together. When uh, I couldn't get to the tournament, I'd ride with his family. When he couldn't get there, he would ride with my family. Joey was like a brother to me, and one day I was an absolute schmuck to Joey. I was just a jerk. I sat him down one day, and in a very self-righteous conversation, I said, Joey, you know, man, your sin is bringing me down your behavior over the last couple months. I just can't agree with it. And my best friend Joey looked at me. He took one look at me and did not even wait one second, and he said this to me. You don't want to be friends with me because some of the dumb things I've done recently— what about all those times I stood up for you when you did dumb things? You want me to remind you of those times? And I said, no, man, I'm queer. <laughs> he said, you're like a brother to me. There's nothing, nothing that you could ever do that would change that. And there sure isn't anything that you could ever say that would change the fact that you're my best friend. absolutely overwhelmed with his words. I didn't know what to say. And so I stood up. And Joey didn't say another word. He stood up and he gave me one of the biggest bear hugs I've ever received in my entire life. And then we continued down the path of friendship. Friends, that's what miracles look like in our lives. That's where holiness is played out in the midst of the ordinary. That's how our lives and our hearts and our minds are transformed. Joey taught me about what it means to be in relationship, what it means to follow the words of Christ. Love the sinner, hate the sin. No. Love your neighbor as yourself? Yes. Love your neighbor as yourself by the grace of God. That's the invitation to the whole thing. May it be so for you and for me and for this world that God so loves. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen.